0: Well, good morning, church. There's a few less of us this morning because of the bad weather. You know, there's a phenomenon in, uh, in Tennessee, where I'm originally from. When we get forecast for a half inch of snow, we cancel schools for a week, right? Because you can't go to school in the snow. My friends from up north laugh at us, They're, you know, because we're so worried about a little snow. But then we move to Kauai, where it's always between 75 and 85 degrees. I'm freezing this morning. It's like, it's like a frigid 65 degrees and I'm, just, I'm so cold. So if you see me shivering, that's why. It's just cold up here. Well, we're going to keep going through the book of Judges and, um, and we're going to finish up the story of Abimelech. Uh, you know, I, I love teaching doctrine. I love going through the book of Romans verse by verse or, or Colossians or Ephesians and just eating up the meat that is in Romans. I, I read through the book of Hebrews that Paul says, when you should be teachers, you have need for milk again. And then he goes through Hebrews. And I'm like, man, I wish I had the steak that Paul wrote. Like Hebrews is it for, for us, you know. It's like, it's, it's real good doctrine. But Paul said, that stuff's just milk. I'm like, man, I'd love to sit in on Paul's Bible studies. And get the the steak, you know, that meat that he's got, that we didn't we didn't get that letter. But I think that information, like doctrine, right? This is what's right and wrong, that doctrine can change the way we think. It can change the way that we understand the connections in the scripture. And that's very important. But stories change the way we feel about God. It changes the way that we understand our heart and God's heart, And it gives us that adjustment. That's why the Old Testament is so big. And all of these stories are preserved by God for us so that we would read them, understand them, internalize them, and be adjusted. The cure for the common culture that is is sweeping America and the world, the cure for Hollywood, the cure for the, the degradation in our slide is understanding the heart of God. And we find the heart of God in the stories that he wrote about himself the the things that he used to explain who he is so i think the stories of the old testament are fascinating they're fun and also they change us they change us in ways that we can't put a finger on and say this is the moment i changed but they change us so that's why we're taking our time and we're going through all of these stories okay let's pray father thank you for this day Thank you for the sunshine that's coming out. Thank you for the wind and the rain, for your blessings. Father, I pray that you would send your word to us like rain, and uh, Lord, that we would spring up, that we would grow and change and adjust, and uh, Lord, be closer to you for it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, so here we are, Judges. This is the part 13, and we're going to go through these the, these two Judges as well, Tola and Jer. Here we are right in the middle of the world between uh, Europe, Asia, and Africa in the little nation of Israel around which all of history hinges. So I want to do a quick catch-up. This is the third or fourth lesson with Abimelech. So I want to do a quick catch-up with where we're at. And so our story so far, we're in about 1126 B.C. That's the time frame that we're in right now. And we started this, this part of our story with Gideon's sin. So remember Gideon had defeated the Midianites, the 134,000-man uh, army. And he comes back and they said, let's you be king. No, I won't be king. Worship God or let him be king. But then he makes the ephod, the, the priestly garment. And that was a distraction to Israel and a bane to his home. And then we had 40 years of peace where Uh, Gideon lived and reigned and he had a lot of sons and a lot of wives and um, God blessed Israel because of Gideon's leadership. Then Abimelech's sin with after Gideon had passed away his uh, one of his sons that was the son of a lady down south a Canaanite woman comes back and he kills all of his brothers up where they had lived in Ophrah and uh, killed his 70 brothers on one rock and then we had him go back to be crowned, and Jotham gets on uh, Mount Gezerah over where they're crowning him and pronounces judgment, and we'll see the finish of that judgment. Then we had three years of peace where Abimelech is reigning from up north in Oprah, while uh, Shechem is controlled by the, the guy that he had put in charge of it down there. And then this guy Gale comes up from the south and starts proclaiming, uh, why do we have to follow Abimelech? He's the son of the Bale fighter. Why can't we follow me? I have a better pedigree. And so Abimelech comes down at the behest of the governor that was in charge of the little town down there and wipes out uh, Gale with uh, a couple of different fights. Now where we start this story and where we finished last time is Abimelech wiped out the army, ran Gale out of town. The governor of the town, or the the perfect down there, goes, all right, we got the job done, we're finished. Abimelech goes a couple miles over, camps in another town. Hears that the people are coming right back out, going to their fields. He gets his army together, comes back, kills all the citizens of the town, not just the army, he kills all the citizens. And after he wipes out the citizens... He goes in and burns and destroys the town, salts the fields, and ends everything. Now, I don't think that the prefect, the governor that he had called, intended for Abimelech to come down and wipe out all of his livelihood, his home, his citizens, and uh, destroy the town. I think that the guy would rather have had Gale in charge than to have Abimelech kill everybody and wipe everything out. But that's what happens when you follow somebody that starts their... Uh, Reign with murder and evil and and pain is the that's that's the nature of the guy. That's what went and took place. So we start our story. The ashes of Shechem are are not yet cold. The fields are salted. The blood of the of the town, many of them innocent, is out in the field where Abimelech has killed them. And then we have this tale of two towers, Judges nine forty six. And when all the men of the towers of Shechem heard that. They entered into an house, uh, entered into an hold of the house of the god Bareth. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. So when they heard what was taking place in town, they rush up the hill and they go into this, this god. This is uh, uh, Baal Bareth, our, our uh, covenant with Baal, but this is Baal's particular chapter, the covenant chapter. They go up and get into the tower up on the hill. Now, this is the town that they've just wiped off the map. This is where this thousand, last thousand citizens of that town, they go up to this tower. Now, to get a thousand people in a tower back then, it required a pretty impressive structure. A pretty big building, pretty tall, a lot of stone, and they felt fairly secure in the tower. It would have been difficult to assault. It was up on top of this mountain. This is looking back down towards Shechem. You can see Gezira just a little bit off the side, and they're up there on top of that pretty steep hill at the very at the at the very peak. And Abimelech got him up to Mount Zelman, and he and the people that were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand, and cut down a broth from the trees, and took it, and laid it on his shoulder, and said unto the people that were with him, What ye have seen me do, make haste, and do as I have done. So these guys get in the tower, they feel secure. Abimelech has an idea. Now I want you to remember that God said that he would destroy these people for what they did. So this is God working. Remember he sent this evil spirit between the two groups to get them upset with each other. So Abimelech thinks he has an idea, but this has been inspired by God in some way. He goes down, he gets this fir tree, he cuts the thing down, puts it on his shoulders, tells the other guys, hey, cut a fir tree down and bring it along. So they all cut these trees, they bring them up to the tower They pile them up around the tower by the doors and windows and make and things, and they burn the thing down. Now, let's jump back to Gideon. This is in chapter 6, so this is three chapters earlier Gideon chapter 6, verse 25. And let's look what Gideon did when he started out. It says, And it came to pass that same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath. And cut down the grove that is by it. And build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place. And make the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. And Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord said unto him. And so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city that he could not do it by day that he did it by night. So the first thing Gideon does is he's directed by God, and God says, I want you to go up to the grove, up by the, the altar of Baal. I want you to cut the grove down, take the logs, throw them on the fire, and then burn the thing after you've knocked, after you've knocked the altar down. Put the calf on it and burn it. Do you see how similar this is to what Abimelech does? When, when Gideon does it, he is destroying an altar of Baal. When Abimelech does it, he's destroying a major monastery. When Abimelech, when Gideon does it, he does it at night with the ten men. When Abimelech does it, he gets a whole bunch of Israel together and they get a whole bunch of wood and they burn this huge tower of Baal down. Now it seems like Abimelech has done the same thing that his dad did. It seems like he's done it even better, even more, even greater than his dad did. So what is the difference? Why is what Gideon did so righteous and holy? and the beginning of a career of following God in what Abimelech did, an ungodly act of murder. What is the difference between the two? The difference is who you're following. God said, I want you, Gideon, to follow me. And Gideon said, men, let's go and follow God together. We're going to do it. And Abimelech said, these guys tick me off. You guys follow me and do what I'm telling you to do. Do you see how big the difference is? It matters who you follow and why you follow them. You know, you hear me say, if you hear me talking much, don't take my word for it. Now that seems like an odd thing to do. I spend all week praying, thinking, dreaming about, studying, and reading the Scripture, history, commentaries. I want to be as close to what God has as I can. Not just what the Scripture says, but what has God got for us from the scripture this week. I am careful because I think it's serious. And then I get here and I say, don't take my word for it. Now, why would I do that? Because it matters who you're following and why you're following them. My word is follow Jesus, not Nathan. Every day, every time. Listen to what he says and not what... Paul said that. Paul said, I like these guys better than those guys because these guys don't take my word for it. It's important that your, that your faith and your trust is rooted firmly in God and Him alone and no one else. And it matters not just what you're doing, but why you're doing it. So here's, an, here's a for instance for you guys. Don't lie. We know the passage in Exodus, right? And, and thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. It's bad. Is that a good tenet? Yeah. Is it proper not to lie? Yes. Was it the Old Testament? Yes, but it's something that's the nature of God, and, and, and we should not lie. God is truth, right? And there's no lie in him. Who else says that? The Mormons say that. Don't lie. Who else says it? The Calvinists. Who else? The Lutherans. The Episcopal, Episcopalians. How about the Jehovah's Witness? Don't lie, right? The Amish will tell you not to lie. So will the Buddhists, to live honestly, right? To be true with yourself. So will the Catholics, Are the Hindus? How about Judaism will tell you not to lie? That's the Old Testament. Atheism. Atheism. Well, there's no God, but you need to be honest. People will tell you not to lie if you're an atheist and followers of Jesus Christ. Is it important not to lie? Yes. Is it good not to lie? Yes. Does it do you any good not to lie? No, it does not, unless you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, when you are following a tenet of Buddhism and that tenet also leads you down the direction, the path of, of right, righteousness, that righteousness isn't righteousness. Righteousness is obedience and faith in God, in Him alone. It matters who you follow. That's why I don't like isms. I don't like it. It doesn't matter what the ism is. If you if, if believe in, in Mormonism or, or Lutheranism or Pearlism or whatever ism that you want to come up with, or is that you want to come up with, don't do it. Don't define yourself by another man. What, look at what Paul said. This is not coming from me. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. It says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul said, I'm not coming here to get you to be a follower of Paul. I'm coming here to tell you about Jesus because of Jesus. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to point you to him. 1 Corinthians, he said it again in First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.12, He says, Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He asked a question. He says, One of you guys says, I'm of Paul, another, I'm of Apollos. Well, how about this? One of you guys says, I'm of Lutheran, one of you guys says, I'm of Calvin. Another of you guys says, I'm of Armenialist. And, and Paul says, did any of these guys die for you? Are any of them are baptized? Are you baptized in their name? Stop saying I'm of that guy and say I'm of Jesus Christ. Follow him and him alone. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Paul said, I didn't come to convince you with a lot of smart words. I didn't come to put together a a theological um, thesis that you could look at and go, now I am this. He said, I came to say, Jesus loves you. Well, that's simple. Yup. Well, anybody could say that. Yup. Then why do we pay people to say it? Don't know. Be followers of Jesus Christ and him alone. Be, be sold out for God and for, for his word and for what he says. And, and let men that teach teach you about Jesus and point to him. And when you're done, it doesn't matter who you follow. It doesn't matter when the guy's gone and passes away and, he, and he's no more. Then we don't need to, to remember and to say, well, this is the guy. We need to point to Jesus and say, he's the guy. And you know what? Teachers that love the Lord are going to tell you this. They, they do. They tell you this. But it's easy for us to focus on where the message is coming from on that person instead of what he's done. Now, here's why. Here's why this is so critical and so important, okay? I've seen this, and it, and it bothers me. So here's two guys. They're lost in a sea of darkness. They don't know God, right? They're standing there, and, 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 and they don't, they've, they've never heard about the cross, about Christ and what he's done, but then it's introduced to them, maybe in a small way. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He's, he's there, and he's reading, and, and Philip comes up. And Philip says, sir, do you know what you're reading? And he goes, how would I know unless some man explains it to me? And then Philip began to open the scriptures and do what? Preach Jesus, right? So, so here's this, guys, and they see the cross, but it says, how shall they hear except they be, uh, the, a preacher? Uh, I didn't quote that right, but anyway. So here comes a preacher, and he brings this idea, this this way of seeing the cross. He brings a glass to to explain and maybe bring some illustrations and some stories to tie the Old Testament and the New Testament together and preach Jesus and explain it. Jesus loves you. That's the message. That's where he's going with it. But he's got all of these illustrations and things, and he leads them to the cross, to Christ, and they become gloriously and wonderfully saved. And then there's another guy, and he maybe has a different language. Maybe he's a different culture, different place, different group, needs a different type of people to to reach him. And so here comes another guy, and he comes along with a different explanation, a different way of explaining the cross. And the man looks through that, that single lens. Oh, I get it now. And he gets wonderfully and glorious saved. Now, this is great. This is what we should hope for. This is what we do as preachers. We come along and explain the cross and its, its tenets so that people can come to know Christ. Here comes the problem. A few years pass. You get a few more on both sides. One through the monocles, the other through the glasses. And then this happens. We have the church of the spectacles. We define ourselves by the, by the position that we're using to see the cross. So we come along and we say our systematic theology is derived from this guy with these spectacles. Therefore, I'm part of the church of the spectacles. And if and if you are want to understand Christ the way I do, that you need to come over here with me and look at Christ through my spectacles. Join our church and be part of this. And if you're part of some other congregation, some other group, sorry. You just don't see it like I do. You need to come and look through these spectacles with me. Now, I've got a buddy that's got... He's got a, a ring in his ears and I think one in his nose and tattoos everywhere and big kind of weird-looking goatee. And, and, you know, he and I love to hang out and talk about the Lord. We love doing that together. And he goes, you know, I get to minister and witness to guys that are like hard rockers out in the West Coast. And you know what hard rockers would think if I come up there, I'm clean cut, right, no tattoos, short hair, and I come up and I start telling them about, you know, God and stuff. They go, well, you're judging me. No, I'm not. Then why don't you dress like me, act like me in any way? Well, maybe, maybe they need my buddy to be the one that's giving them the gospel. But I say, you know what? You need to come over here and be like me. And he says, no, you need to be like me. And I say, you know what? God's bigger than our monocles or our spectacles. So we come over here and we have the church of the monocles. Now, are this, is this guy wrong? Is his monocles wrong? No. He was able to explain to that man the cross in a very clear and good way. The man got saved. And the guy with the spectacles, he was right too. They're both right. There's, these are not bad guys. Now, they might be a little different, and they're, not everything is right. I'm not, I'm not teaching you that truth is subjective. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when, we're, when our focus is at Calvary, the way that we see Calvary, the way that we understand it and where we come from is less important than Calvary. So then these two become at odds with each other. And, and the guy from this church at the spectacles goes over to the church at the monocles and says, hey, if you want to see you know, the whole truth, you need to come over here with me and vice versa. And when one gets upset, they go to the other side and vice versa. And the church of God, the body of Christ, is split. It's separated. And there's a fragment down the center of it. Why? Because we're defined, instead of by the cross, by the position that we were in when we saw the cross. That's not the way it ought to be. If instead we get rid of the monocles, we get rid of the, of the spectacles, and we say we're followers of Jesus Christ, and I'm starting over here, and I'm moving toward the cross, and you're starting over there, and you're moving toward the cross, every day we're a little closer together. Every day, we're a little bit more like each other. You know why? Not because we're getting like each other. Not because we're having an ecumenical movement. No, we're like each other because we're both moving toward the cross and we're more like Jesus. And the more we get like Jesus, the more we're like one another because we're being more like him. You see, this is the body of Christ. This is how it was put together. And it matters who you follow. That's the reason that I put so much scripture up on the screen because I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to look at the Word of God, Jesus, and His written Word, and put your faith in His written Word. I want to bring the monocles and the spectacles and whatever else screen I can bring to get you to see Jesus better, but I want your focus on Jesus and not on the way that you've come to see Him and know Him. I want to someday be dead and gone, and you take the Word of God and have been changed And moved not by me, but by the Word of God, because you will have that forever. You know why you'll have it? Because He's promised you that not one jot or tittle would pass away. He's promised you, you will have the Word of God forever. So you put your faith in Him. What did Jesus say here? He said, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. You know what we are? We're disciples of Jesus Christ. That is why it is so important for me to understand that I am an under-shepherd. I am not the shepherd. I am one of the sheep. I am a sheep in the field with the other sheep And I've been given the job of pointing the sheep to the shepherd, the good shepherd, and the sheep know his voice. That's the illustration that we have, that that he is the one that we are disciples of together. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then there's no conflict with other disciples of Jesus Christ. If you're a disciple of Nathan Pearl, then when you go somewhere else and somebody else is a disciple of John Smith or whoever... Then then there can be conflict because Nathan says it one way and John says it the other way, you see. Then there's conflict. But if we're both disciples of Jesus Christ, all of us, then we're just moving closer to him and closer to Jesus. Important concept. Okay, back to this tower, back where we were. Judges chapter 9, verse 48. And Abimelech got him up to the Mount Zalman, and him and the people that were with him, and Abimelech took his axe in his hand and cut down a broth of the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder and said unto the people that were with him what ye have seen me do make haste and do as i have done and all the people likewise cut down every man his broth and followed abimelech and put them to the hold and set the hold on fire upon them so that all the men of the tower of shechem died also about a thousand men and women so after they had killed the town they came and they put these trees against the, this tower and they burnt the tower and they killed everybody that was inside. What a difficult, horrible thing to be a part of. Abimelech's blood's lust is up at this point. Remember what Jotham said? Remember when he's up on Mount Gezerim and he's shouting down at him and he says, But if not, if you haven't done what's right, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem. You know, God is involved in this, God is sovereign. God is in control. And when, and when Jotham is up on the hill, I don't know if God's speaking to Jotham because that's the way he's going to end it, or if God just directed Abimelech and spoke to him through that spirit that he sent. But whatever took place, the prophecy was, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem. God gets 1,000 men in an oven and has Abimelech light the fuse. God is in control. Judges 9.50 Then went Abimelech, to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and took it, and there was a strong tower within the city, and thither fled all the men and women, and all they of the city, and shut it to them, and got them upon up, up to the top of the tower. So here is uh, he he goes back north down at the bottom of that V is where he's just burnt uh, all the guys in that other tower, but he's not satisfied. Remember, they were waylaying people. Uh, that were coming through the mountains, so Abimelech heads back north. He goes up to Thebes and he assaults this titty, city and and it camps against it. As he starts killing the people in the city, they they retreat to this tower and they go up into this stone thing, not having yet heard what he had already done to the other tower. But he already has his solution. So, Abimelech came up under the tower and fought against it, and went hard under the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman cast a piece of a millstone upon Abimelech's head, and all to break his skull. So, this millstone, so Abimelech comes to this tower. He's probably got more trees. He's come up to the door of the tower. They fought the men back into the tower. He thinks he's about to have victory. And this is the final battle. This is it. Abimelech has got all of his enemies now surrounded, and they're in one last tower, and he already knows how he's going to take the tower out. He gets there with fire, and here goes this woman from the top of the tower. Now, this millstone would look something like this. It's about 12 or 18 inches across, and it weighs 20, 30 pounds, something like that. It's this rock, and you don't throw a millstone unless you're about to die. Like, this is an important tool, and you're not going to run down to Walmart and get another one. Somebody spent a lot of time shaping this stone and getting it perfectly flat so you could grind your wheat with it. And so this tower's being assaulted. Here comes this guy. This woman's freaking out. She runs back into the common room where their millstone is. She grabs this 30-pound millstone, runs to the edge of the tower, flings it over. God's in control. God's, God's moving that millstone. Maybe it bounces a little bit, rolls around the edge, and I don't know. But this millstone falls and clocks Abimelech right on the head. But God wasn't done. He let Abimelech stay alive for just a minute longer. Here's how it might look where the common area where they're turning that millstone like that, and it grinds the wheat, and the wheat comes out around the edge of it. It says, Then he called hastily unto the young man, his armor-bearer, and said unto him, Draw thy sword and slay me that the men say not of me, a woman slew him. And his young men thrust him through and he died. And the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead and they departed every man into his place. Now, my daughter came in the office and caught me chuckling and asked, why are you laughing this week? And I said, because 3,150 years later, we're talking about how a woman slew him. Like his hope, right, was that no one would know this. Here we are. <laughs> 3,000 some odd years later, and, and we're reading his last words, he never thought, as he's laying there bleeding out on this this uh, porch around this building, that for the next 3,000 years, people would read this story and then chuckle at the fact that he didn't want uh, anybody to know that a girl killed him. And so he got stuck through with a sword. And I just kind of enjoyed God this week, that... That, you know, that he's in control, <laughs> that he's on the throne, and that he has victory. You know, Abimelech killed his brothers, and that was awful. And God brought judgment. and God's judgment was swift and sure, and it lasted. You know, I can rest in God's judgment, knowing that he will judge the wickedness of the world, and I don't have to because of stories like this. That I can have peace in my heart, that, that evil will be overcome. Because of stories like this, I can rest in the Lord. So every man, they see what happened, they go their own way, and that was the end of Gideon's line. And God rendered the wickedness of Abimelech, which he did unto his father in slaying his seventy brethren. And all the evil of the men of Shechem did God render upon their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. What a way to end the chapter! That, that God was the one that rendered. You know what rendering is? You know when you render fat out of a, out of a pig? You, you put it in a pot and you heat it until it separates out and you take that, that top part when you render something. God pressure cooked Israel and brought to the forefront the thing that he wanted to accomplish and rendered On the wickedness of Abimelech and on the people, and they judged each other. By the time Abimelech was done, the men of Shechem was gone. The town was gone, the city was gone, the place that they worshipped was gone. The ground that they grew stuff in was destroyed and salted. And all that was left was a little group of people with a little old lady that threw a millstone. God killed them all and wiped them out. Man, I can I can rest with that God. I can sit down and say, You've got this. I'm, I'm just going to cheer you on, Father. I'm just going to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't need to, to fight your battles. They're yours. Okay, the next one. We have very little info about this judge. Judges chapter 10, verse 1. And after Abimelech, there arose to defend Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, the man of Issachar, And he dwelt in, in Shemar in Mount Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty and three years and died and was buried in Shemar. So here's this guy, that this judge that rises after Abimelech. He's up for about twenty-three years. We know very little about the guy. A few things that we know. One, he defends Israel. Now that is the position of a soldier, of a, of a, a, a fighter, right? That's what we've found so far. The defenders are the ones fighting against enemies. We don't act, absolutely know who he fought. I have a good idea. Next, that he judged Israel. So he took the position of a civilian judge to deal with their issues and their problems. Now, here's who I think he he defended against. This is where he died. This is Shamar up here in the middle of of Manasseh, where he was buried and died uh, up there. And if we jump down 11 verses, uh, we see, And the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from... and And he gives a list. Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the children of Ammon, from the Philistines, from the Zidotians, also from the Amalekites and from the Maonites did oppress you and ye cried unto me and I delivered you out of their hands. So here he says, this is the group that I delivered you from, the Zydotians we don't have any record of. I think that's who uh, this guy was fighting against was the, the Zidotians, and they, we find again in 1 Kings 11, because that they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians. So we'll see later that Israel has issues with Ashtaroth. And um, that's the guys that, that uh, he was, uh, Jer was fighting, I mean, uh, uh, Tola was fighting against. So here is uh, Jair, uh, 1126 to 1105 B.C. And after him arose Jer, a Gilead, Gileadite and judged Israel 20 and 2 years and he had 30 sons that rode on 30 ass colts and they had 30 cities which are called havoth Jer, unto this day which are in the land of Gilead and Jer died and was buried in Cammon so here is another judge we know very little about one of the things that we know is that he's a merchantman he has uh, a lot of wealth the 30 ass colts would be like saying 30 corvettes but uh to, to raise uh, these colts requires a lot of infrastructure. You have to either be able to purchase them outright or you have to be able to breed and grow and then more. And then it takes a long time to get a herd big enough that you have 30 colts that you use for nothing except riding. That that required a lot. And then the name of, of it to this day is called the city of Jer or the tent city of Jer. So these guys uh, traveled. They were likely merchant men. They were likely very wealthy. He had a bunch of wives because he had 30 sons. And uh, he didn't defend Israel. He judged Israel. So Israel goes through a time, a period, where they're not being attacked. And instead, this guy that travels and sells things and and, uh, is wealthy is over Israel. And this leads up to a judgment that's coming that we won't get to this week. But remember that he doesn't have any battles So this whole generation from Abimelech on has very little fighting that they have to do. Here's up on the, uh, if you're keeping up with it, we're on the east side of the uh, Jordan River just below the Sea of Galilee. That's where his headquarters were. That's where his town was and where he ended up passing away. Now we have a period of cultural degradation that we're going to follow Israel through here in Judges. So Judges uh, chapter 10, verse 6, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served him not. This is extraordinary. Can you imagine going through history? And, you, and these guys know their history. They, they know where they came from. You go through history, and you know that God delivered you. You know that God blessed you. You know what He's done for you, and yet you build a temple and give money to and and honor Ashtaroth, the gods of the Philistines, the ones that that have been fighting you, the Canaanites. I mean, can you imagine having a story like the the story of of, of the um, the uh, cities when they when they first came in, and the the cities just fell before him like Jericho or or the other cities as they went up north and they like blew a trumpet, the walls fell over, and you have that in your history. Jehovah has done that for you, and you just start worshiping Ashtaroth. That just, like what what are they thinking? Has God ever worked in your life? Has God ever blessed you and, and been involved in that spot where you're low and things are difficult and you cry out and you say, God, I can't and you feel the Spirit of God say, Son, I'm here and I love you. I'm here. I'm with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for thy rod and thy staff they comfort me. And you just know that. What a blessing that is. What, what, a, what a delight that is to your soul in the midst of the hardship. And then you come through it praise God, it's better. Then you're walking on the mountaintop and God has blessed you and everything is just wonderful and you can do it on your own. No, you can't. No, you can't. You need God in your life. That's the way we were designed and made and that's who we are. We need God. But as soon as we get to that mountaintop, everything's peachy and man, we've got it figured out and God, is, God has blessed us back then when we needed it. But now, We're rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. Friends, he wrote us a letter in the book of Revelation and said, here's what you're going to say. When you do, I want you to know, know that you're poor and blind, naked, wretched, and you need me, and I'm right here available to you. We do this. We do the same thing Israel did. He says, listen, if you're on the mountaintop and you are rich and you're increased with goods and you are so got this, on your own. You don't need me at all. No, I want you to know you need me. Turn to me. Turn to me and ask me, and I'll be right there with you. Don't forget, they, they forgot. These stories are important. This is why. So they did two things. They forsook the Lord. First of all, they turned their back on Him. Then they embraced the other gods. That's the way it always works. First, you know, I don't feel like going to Jerusalem this year. I don't want to go do that right now. I, you know, I don't want to go to church. I want to go f- do, I don't know, fishing. I want to go work on my car. I want, to, I want to go ride my dirt bike. I want to do something besides church because I'm just too busy. I don't want to read my Bible this morning. I'm too tired. I don't want to spend time in prayer. It takes too much emotional energy. I don't want to minister. I, and first, they forsook the Lord. They just said, I'm going to go my own way, and I'm not. And then they started serving other gods. It's unfortunately the way that we do all too often. 10.7. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of Ammon. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years, all the children of Israel that were on the other side of Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. So... God looks down at what Israel's doing and he gets ticked off. Do you know God gets ticked off? You know God gets angry, like emotional, upset and angry. We have this we have this warped view of God and of religion that Godliness is like if you're in a monastery and everything's quiet and and a little bit chilled and there's maybe some candles burning and somebody's going in the background or whatever and and you're real serene, like now I'm being godly. You know God's emotional? God created us in his image. Friends, God created you in his image. And the emotions that you feel are are representative of your creator, He created you with that. When you're happy, God gets happy. When you're angry, God gets angry. The point is not to not feel the emotion. The point is for it not to rule you, but for your spirit to rule and God's spirit to rule in your life. As Christians, we sometimes think that we need to accept all the evil that's done to us without feeling angry or hurt or or in pain from it. That's not appropriate if you don't feel anger when, when, when you're hurt, when somebody does something, it's not because you've forgiven them, it's because you don't agree that you are worth and have value, that you are important, that your, that your life was important, and the thing that they've done that's destroyed that, that's hurt that. If, if your spouse cheats on you, or, or if, if somebody steals from you and you feel anger, that is a godly emotion. That's an appropriate emotion. To feel that, it just shouldn't rule you. As a matter of fact, unless you feel angry, you can't forgive them. Unless you feel that you've been hurt, you can't forgive them. For instance, if I go to Subway and I order a a sandwich and it comes out and I go in the parking lot and I go, this sandwich has nitrates in it. If I threw this on the beach, it wouldn't grow mold in a month because there's so much poison in that stuff to keep it fresh, you know, so it won't make you sick. This sandwich is full of nitrates. How dare they? But I bought it. I knew that before I bought it. It would be silly for me to be upset over something that I expected when I purchased the thing, right? That would be silly. But if somebody violates my rights, if they do something, if I order a salad and I open it and there's grubs in my salad, then I can, I can feel upset because that's not what I bought. That wasn't right, you've done me wrong. You've hurt me in a way and taken something that was mine. You violated my trust and my rights then I can feel angry. When I'm angry, I can forgive. When I've been violated, I can forgive. I can say, you know what? You violated my rights. I'm going to set my rights aside, not because my rights aren't important, not because it wasn't wrong for you to do what you did, but because Christ forgave me. And what I did to him was wrong. What I acted like towards him was wrong. More wrong than any of you will ever do to me, I've done to the Prince of Peace, and the Prince of Peace made peace with me anyway and then he's called me to be like him. So I'm going to set my rights that are my rights that you violated. I'm going to set them aside, and I'm going to forgive you, not because you're worthy of forgiveness, not because my rights weren't, but because God asked me to, and I love him, and he loves you, and he's asked me to act that way toward you. You see, it's important to understand the difference. It's important to know that God gets angry That's a good thing to know. It gives us a freedom to recognize the feeling is not bad. It's not wrong. But the Bible says what? Let not the sun go down upon thy wrath. It's okay. You can feel anger. Let it go. Don't let it be bitterness. So here's where they are. They're over here on this side of Israel. And it says, Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah, and against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was sore distressed. So remember, for a year, the fight's all over Israel. It moves east of Jordan over into where the, the Ammon lived, which was this area. Then from that area, they're sending out little uh, uh, war parties that will go out to these areas and attack Israel so that for the next 18 years, Israel sore distressed. They're just in in turmoil over it. Verse 10, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, we have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines? So the children of Israel come back and they go, God, we sinned, save us again. And he goes, I already did that. We've already had this song and dance. We've already been here and you didn't learn your lesson. So he has a word for them. He says the Zidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mennonites, I keep wanting to call them Mennonites, did oppress you, and ye cried unto me, and I delivered you out of their hand. And ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods you have chosen, and let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Have you ever been there? Have you ever sinned against God? Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, I did that, and I messed up my marriage. Yeah, I yelled at my wife again. I'm so, oh, Lord, Lord, restore my marriage to me. A week later. Oh, God, I did it again. Restore my marriage. A week later. God, uh." shouldn't we learn our lesson? God looks at the children of Israel and says, I've already done this. We've already done this. We've already had this song and dance. Stop doing what you're doing. What you're doing is wrong, and you know what? Go credit the false gods. You want to serve them? Go serve them. See if they'll serve you back. You go, you go take care of that yourself. Now, I'm so go- glad that this is the God we serve right here. Judges 10, 15. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. You know, the Bible says that God judges his kids. Yes, we have, we have our, our place in heaven secured, name written down. Jesus will not let go of me, but the Bible says that whomsoever the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son. God spanks his kids. God brings judgment. When we sin and when we act against God, he does. And then we say, God, take away your judgment, and he does. And then we do it again, and then he does, and then back and forth, and there's this cycle, and and we want God, why aren't you bigger in our lives? Because I'm not bigger in your life, because you're not choosing me. You're not walking with me. You're not seeking me early. Instead, you've forsaken me, and you're starting to serve other things. Turn back and embrace me. Go to church. Go to Bible study. Stop and talk to that person. Love on that brother or sister in Christ. Pray. Read the Word of God. Seek me early, and then you'll find me, and I'll be with you. Seek wisdom. Seek God. Don't just wait for him to show up in your life or wait till everything's bad and then say, God, come and bail me out. Say, God, right now while everything's good and I'm on the mountaintop, God, I want you. I need more of you. I need more of you and less of me. God, fill me and direct me. God, everything's going good right now. I have more time to read your word and to get closer to you. Verse 16, I love this about God. They put away the strange gods and serve the Lord. God's watching them. And he sees them. They put away those gods and they start going back to the temple. They start offering, sacrificing, and serving God. And God looks down and sees what's happening to them. And it grieved him. You know, God's soul gets grieved. God gets hurt on your behalf for what's going on in your life. You know that misery that you're walking through sometimes? God's walking through it with you, and he's not walking through it impassively, you know, all religious, hands folded. Yep, 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 yep. He's walking through that with his arm around you, crying with you. Oh, that wouldn't happen, right? God's not emotional. John chapter 11, verse 34. Jesus has just come back to John the Baptist, to the tomb, and he says, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, Behold, how he loved him. Does Christ know that he's about to bring Lazarus back from the grave? He does. He said that this is the reason that John died, so that I could get the glory from that, so they could see that I'm the resurrection and the life. There's a purpose to this. Jesus knows that, but as he's walking with John's sister and with their family and they're walking back to the grave, Jesus hangs his head, tears are falling down, and he's weeping with them. He hurt with them. He grieved for them. You go, well, he was acting. No, he wasn't. God grieves for his people when they hurt. You know, God sees the end from the beginning. Right now, I am seated on the right hand of the throne of God with him at his table, experiencing glory. I just haven't received it yet. But he's there. He's there with me right now because time's not passing with him. It's passing with me. God's already there. He was from the beginning and he's to the end and he's everything in between. And yet... When I hurt, when my soul is heavy, and when I grieve, and when I, when I come before God and say, God, I can't carry this. He's kneeling next to me, answering those prayers, those groanings that I can't even have words for. God loves you. Think about the enormity of that. God loves you. Not just this thing where he's like standing back saying, okay, come over here and I'll love you. No, right there in the mud with you. Right there in the pain, your pain that you created. Right there in the misery arm around you, crying with you, loving on you, grieved for you. What a good God we serve. John eleven thirty seven, And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. And it was a cave and a stone lay upon it. As he walks there and, and they're thinking, Why couldn't God have taken this pain away instead of saying, Oh, well, let me explain that to you. Let me teach you about... Instead, he goes, Oh, yeah, that hurts that our friend died. That that grieves me too. And he's right there with him. Man, that's the God we serve. The God that is eternal and omnipotent and has everything in his hands. And when Abimelech is born to this woman and Gideon sinned against God and, 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 and built this ephod and God knows what's coming. And he's setting the stage, and as they're building that tower on that hill, God suggests to him maybe to put this particular uh, little V in there, that this woman's going to throw a stone. God knows what's coming. And God's judgment falls, quite literally, on Abimelech's head. That's the God we serve, but we also serve the God. The God who walks with us through that pain, if we turn back to him in repentance. If we turn back and we say, you are our God, and we, we forgot we forgot to serve you. He's the God that walks right with us, arm around us, saying, I love you, and I hurt for your pain and what you're going through. Isaiah 53.3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The Bible says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because we don't have a high priest that hasn't been touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was tempted just like we were. It says that he knows what it's like, what you're going through, the pain and the difficulty and the sorrow that's in your heart. He knows. And when you feel like you can't carry it anymore, he's felt like that. When you feel like, God, where are you? He has looked to the heavens and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And why art thou so far from the voice of my roarings? Your God, the God, the one that has created heaven and earth and everything in it, the eternal omnipotent God is walking right next to you through the pain that you have created, the sorrow and the judgment in your life that you have created. He's walking right there with you, hurting Grieving, loving, directing, wanting, drawing, calling, come to me. Love the song softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. Calling, O oh sinner, come home. The Israelites sinned against God over and over, over and over. They chased every God that's around them except their God. And they knew better. And yet here he is calling, come home, come back to me, repent towards me, come back to me. And when they did, he's right there grieving with him. Friends, we serve an awesome God. We serve a loving God. We serve a God that, that redeems and calls that which is not as though it were. We serve a God that takes the iniquity that, that we have completed, that we've done, the problems that we've put in, in everything in our lives. We serve a God that takes that and says, No, son, you're justified before me. And I have peace with you, not because of you, but because of what I have done. That's who we serve. Okay, let's pray. Father, I just come to you with a grateful heart this morning. What, what a loving God you are, Lord. I can't even wrap my mind around how much you love us, that when we mess up, that you are there to pick up the pieces and then to hurt with us for what we've done. You are greater than anything we could hope or ask for. You are better than we are or will ever be, Father. You are just awesome, awesome to serve. Lord, help us to seek you early. As we see the Israelites and the problems that they have, Father, they start by forsaking you. Help us not to forsake you, Father. Not in the truck, not at the job, not at home, not when the TV's on, Father, not not when we... Uh, are, are, are speaking and having conversations, Father, not to forsake you, but to embrace you in every piece in every corner of our lives. Father, you're a jealous God. You told us that your name is jealous, that that's who you are. Help us to walk that way, Lord, that you are jealous over us, that you called us back to yourself again and again. Lord, we love you. We love being your kids. We love serving you. We love being in your family. We love being with your family. Help us to know you better, walk with you closer. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right.